0: Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges. Well, we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, Let's get into it. Our purpose, to do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage and the rest of us, well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to Etch Edge the Edges. As ever, we do our best to try to bring compelling shows to the fore, powerful information to be shared. Things that make you think and things that make you look at stuff from a different perspective. And as we all know, you know, we're not highfalutin here. We don't we don't stand on airs, we're not trying to take it to the highest academic level. As a matter of fact, our point and purpose is to hit the edges and bring things down to a level where we can all understand them. So with that in mind, we've got our guest today, Jason Svetzel. Am I pronouncing that correct, Jason?
1: Sheftel, but pretty close.
0: <laughs> Jason Cheftel. Okay. All right. We've got Jason Cheftel with us today, and we're going to go a little global. Our topic today is going to be China and what it means to Western liberties. Now, again, always remember on Itchy Edges, we are aspiring critical thinkers. So the point and purpose is, as ever, to keep it at a simple level, but look at things differently. That means you may have a concern, you may have a fear, you may have Uh, a look on a given thing that's charged and energetic, might even promote negative conflict, but that's not what we're about. We're about gaining understanding in order to gain the understanding, we know, we've got to share the stories. We've got to have the conversation. So Jason is simply here to enlighten us. And if he says something that sets you on edge, well, let's just take that as a good thing because now you know, and then you can go and look at it for yourself, research and understand and find out the things that you didn't know before. So Jason, Welcome to the show. We're, we're glad to have you. And please take a moment, introduce yourself.
1: Sure, Derek, thanks. Thanks again for having me on. And yeah, so name's Jason Cheftel, and I'm basically a kind of a China guy. So I've been well interested in China my whole life. I really, really do- dove into it about 10, 11 years ago. I got a scholarship to study in China. I studied Chinese. I was there. I was in and out of China from 2010 to 2015. And then after that, and a little before, I was kind of going around the world. I was really focused on development. Um, How do countries develop? How do they not develop? Why do they develop? What conflicts arise when they're trying to? What happens with their neighbors? All that kind of stuff. And what I try and do is, like you said, I try and make a country like China, which is very old, very large, very complex, understandable to people. And the world we live in is one where China is kind of enmeshed in every single conflict that you could imagine. Um, when we are thinking about how to regulate tech companies, when we're thinking about what to do in space, when we're thinking about how to deal with inequality in this country, you can name any sort of issue. And there is the major state that we're all looking to, to compare ourselves with. It's not Germany. It's not France. It's not India. It's not really anyone else. It's, it's almost entirely China at this point. So I just try and bring some information about what that country is about, where it's going, where it's headed, what that means for us and how we should all try and think about, it, or at least think about it at least in a slightly different way, maybe a little better, more nuanced sort of fashion.
0: That is awesome, Jason. So why don't we kick it off a little bit by taking a step back and doing a past comparison, right? Like you said, you know, Western liberties, Western thoughts, Western perspectives, this is the United States of America. But when you compare that to a China, you know, um, I don't know how many folks out there have done their research. But as you said, China is a is an extensive country. It's an old country, the dimensions and the, the things that give it its character are almost too numerous to describe. I remember seeing a special around a, a city in middle China that had a beautiful restaurant being displayed. And it was like either the fifth century or something like that. And, and then, you know, and the history goes even further back. So tell us, based upon your knowledge and understanding, comparing Western civilization to China civilization mm. and the, the, the so-called celestial kingdom and how right. far back that really goes.
1: Wow. So you really want to start easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. So the way it works is the propaganda line in China by the Chinese government is that China has a 5,000-year history. And that line, straight up, it, it's propaganda. It has a lot. There's a lot of reasons they use it. A big one, and actually the most easiest to understand, and maybe one of the most compelling reasons is just the word 10,000 in China has a lot of symbolic meaning and a lot of associations with it. It basically means very many, 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 like an infinite number. So you'll often hear, oh, it's a one in 10,000 year flood. It's a one in 10,000 sort of caliber genius or whatever. It's used for everything. And 5,000 is basically half of that. So it means that China's halfway through, right? It's had, it's had half, the glass is half full. 5,000 years, and we're about to have the next 5,000 glorious years of, of Chinese civilization. Realistically, China, as we want to think about it, started closer to 3,500 years ago. This was the old Shang dynasty. This dynasty was not what we would call a real dynasty. I mean, this was a place with human sacrifice, with dynasties that were transferred brother to brother, with capitals that were sort of roved around the king, was sort of like the king on the run sort of always moving very different place, very different culture, but that's where that's the earliest records we have for Chinese writing, Chinese, everything. And that's really a good point. I think if people want a number in their head, 3,500 years, and if you want to compare it to Western civilization, that's, that's definitely a dicey one. I personally don't believe that, you know, if we want to talk about the West, we're, we're not talking about Greece and Rome. You really got to go all the way back. And the place to start is probably Egypt for a variety of regions. There was, you know, Sumeria, Babylon, Assyria, all these places, but That region of the Middle East where Iraq is, you know, Iraq, Kuwait, where we decide to, you know, invest ourselves for whatever reason, that place is a very conflicted region. So that area of the Middle East, it never got the sort of cultural stability, political stability, uh, economic cohesion, social cohesion that you saw in Egypt. So Egypt, this is a crazy statistic, but ancient Egypt was, you know, from around, you know, 3,300 BC to like 1300 BC it was basically alone independent cohesive unified for an enormous like an enormously long amount of time i mean right. this was longer than all of the later chinese dynasties when they were united put together to put it in perspective china spends a lot of its time not as a unified state but as a bunch of warring states right that is that is chinese history i mean that we will definitely we can definitely get into it but Egypt is a ridiculously interesting place. For people don't know anything about it. We want to take one cool thing from this that has nothing to do with China. Egypt is wild. So I, I encourage people to look that up. But the conflicts with the West, I mean, the difference with the West, one thing that makes Western civilization so complex is that there's so many strands. There's Egyptian, there's the Sumerian stuff, there's the constant influx of, of Persian influences. There's the, all the, the various peoples that move in from the, the Eurasian steppe, right? The Scythians and going on all, all the way through the Russians, Mongols horde various horrors that come out of there and piecing it all together in europe which is already another fragmented place with german now german french italian all this it is it's a very complex convoluted thing you have convoluted religions convoluted political states convoluted geographies and on and on so it makes it very complex so western civilization tough (laughs) it's tough and it's much harder to even get a handle on these days but it's, it's it's very different than China China has a similarly sort of broken fragmented history but it really did take place um, in something we can call China uh, there it's broken into pieces but yeah it's uh it's a very it's a very different place and it's it's something that has a very very different history than the West this the individualist strain just broadly speaking whether you're conservative or republican just the general individualist strain in, in Western history very very different from China yep. there's we could get into it but uh, the, the land, the, the actual Chinese territory, the, the various pieces they were trying to pull together, it's not the sort of place that is amenable to, you know, great artists and individual freedoms and stuff. It's, it's just not the way it works. If you wanna keep that place together, you need a kind of an iron hand, an iron fist, to be honest. So that's, that's why the way it looks, the way it does.
0: I got you. And that kind of leads us into um, a portion of the conversation when we talk about liberty. And but I want you to also talk about that, that piece to, to what you said around the view and individualism and the, the, the focus of the person achieving their success. What I found over time comparing what I've read and studied to meeting people is unlike us. I mean, we have a sense of patriotism that can run rabbit to nationalism. We have a sense of rugged individualism that speaks to me achieving my own personal success. But still within the framework of this nation that I live in, and I'm proud of, the um, view that you often get from the East that gets magnified is that it's a long view, and it's for the sake of the country. You know, it's for the sake of the land in which I live and the people that I support. So I play a role, and you know I'm in that role, and I stay in that role. That's 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 just what I do. That's my life, and you know I want to have prosperity for my children but I, I, I don't think of this as something just for me. Is that what you found as well, Jason? Or could you elaborate on that?
1: So in in China originally, the, the reason why what we're talking about, this individualism generally is it, so different there is the great fear and the great specter that haunts Chinese history is chaos more than anything else because that land tumbles into the sort of catastrophic violence that we really don't see in many other places. So just, just as an example, before the world, before the 20th century, both of the worst wars in history were Chinese civil wars before then. There's the battle between the Ming and Qing dynasties, yeah. and then the you know the total destruction towards the end of the Qing dynasty, like everything. And, and also the two worst natural disasters outside of plagues, you know, floods, I mean, famines and, and diseases were also floods in China. And they're, they're absolutely catastrophic and you need people to work together to keep things together. So way back in the day, you needed people working all the time to maintain flood controls, irrigation systems, and all this sort of stuff, because particularly the yellow river basin is a, it's, it's the greatest manifestation of like natural chaos. You'll find anywhere on earth, especially a place where people live at least. And it's brutal. I mean, so we just saw something people may not know that last a couple of weeks ago in July, the the city in western and sort of western part of northern China, it called Zhengzhou, which has been hit by floods probably more than anywhere else in China in a long time. This place got hit by really bad rain. So basically, it got a year's worth of rain in a single day. Got like eight inches in an hour, and there were multiple dams that were close to to collapsing at this time. And the entire Chinese state basically is a sort of a full government response you know the military is in there within hours xi jinping knows about this within hours because if this is the prototypical event is a major yellow river flood that leads to a chain reaction that ends up with the collapse of a state in china and wow. it's it's bad i mean so the way it look well, the way it looks like on the ground is like you get a flood everything you know people start fleeing in every direction so people want a context remember uh, katrina and everyone from new orleans had to be resettled everywhere well, in China, you get millions of people fleeing in every direction. Then you get all these pools of stagnant water. You used to get a bunch of cholera popping up everywhere. Then you'd have the, the crops would all be inundated. So you get huge crop failure. So then you have famine. And it's just like, oh, my God, spiral, 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 invasions, yeah. war, blah, blah, blah. Um, wow. it, it's, it's terrifying when it happens. So the government is not messing around. And little people talking about to them, literally, little people who want their art. It's just, it's just they're, to them, their priorities are up here. And people who are thinking just about themselves, it feels minor. And there is a cultural sense where everyone wants to, you know, be on that same level. It's like we're trying to keep everything together. It does feel more momentous, maybe, than a single life. Yeah. It's a very different thing, but it has a, a real historical depth and cultural relevance there.
0: And that's that thing that I was touching on that I felt so innately when speaking to people from China and looking at the culture and how they view things. And to your point to me, it, 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 it had its benefits, um, you know, and the benefit is to, to look at it simply is stability. That's what they needed in order to make things run. You know, it's a totally different environment, different culture, the way things came up, totally different. And of course, when, you know, my friends that have come over here and, you know, they've worked for me and, you know um, you know, we're talking conversation over developing a piece of software and all that nonsense, and these things come out, you know they're real matter of fact about it. They like what they have over here and what they've developed over here, but it is markedly different than where they came from. And even though the they've embraced this form of capitalism, they're still clearly, from my perspective, you know, don't know what China's going to evolve into. But it seems like there's often a need for them to be the way they are on, on many on many subjects. Like you know, I was telling a couple of friends and you can clarify this and correct me why I'm wrong, but when we had the outbreak in Wuhan shut down, you know, the authoritarian power of the government was like a hammer. They were able to shut a whole city off. And I mean, you just, just say that, you know, like you said, in the flood, they, they ran away. But if they if the government said we're not going to let you run away, they're actually yeah. they were doing something like that. Yeah. And that's what they did with the city. They was like, like tanks and barricades. And, and that's it. You're in there. You can't get out. You can't do that over here. This yeah. country doesn't work like that. It's not, we can't. It's impossible for us to do it. Someone will stand on a highway on national television and say, it's my right to walk past the tank and go to the next state, you be damned. But over there, not so much. (laughs) Stay where you are on penalty of serious punishment. Am I right in that?
1: Oh yeah, you really nailed it. And I think that, I mean, people always need to remember these countries are the way they are because often they need to be that way, right? Like everyone wants to blame, the Communist Party. I'm not a fan of the Chinese Communist Party, obviously, but even if the nationalists had won, if it had been a different style of government, you would have ended up with a very authoritarian, powerful, centralized, hierarchical state. That's the way it's always been. And it's just for the reason you mentioned, they need stability there. And what happens is the stability always bleeds into the excess of sort of, you know, tyranny, basically, right? I mean, that's where it bleeds it. And he's like, oh, we need to be stable, 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 stable. You prevent everything from. know, ever-changing, it gets really rigid, and that's also a real challenge China has is it gets ossified. So by the 19th century, China was just, it was like thousands of years out of date, if that makes sense. It refused to change because it was trying to keep its systems together, and it was a very tumultuous, volatile process to get to where it is today. And I think you're right. when You say that people don't quite know, within China, they don't quite know where it's headed. It makes a lot of sense. It's been a very disorienting and painful transition into the modern world. Absolutely. yeah, 1911, uh, and I think that we, we always got to remember that. I mean, it is it's a very different place. And what you're talking about that that government capacity to you know shut down a city, yeah, I mean, that that's everywhere. So people like in the U.S. were very, very, people are very worried about tech companies ruling everything. Well, in China, you know, the, their biggest tech leader just got smacked down by yeah. saying the wrong thing. Immediately, <laughs> it's like done. And like if there was a Bezos who said the wrong word there, he'd be gone. like immediately. It's a totally different world.
0: Totally. And
1: we got it. That's something we're always going to have to keep in mind when you hear China regulating something in a certain way. So video games, China just called video games, electronic drugs and spiritual opium. And they're going to regulate that. Like, like they're going to regulate them. I boom. Yeah. Right. Who knows how they actually, I don't know how they're actually going to do it, but if once they choose to, they could totally do it. And there are a lot of things in the U S we want to deal with. Maybe kids shouldn't play so many video games. Maybe, you know what I mean? Maybe people shouldn't, you know, be on watching porn all day long, all these sorts of things, <laughs> but you can't do anything about it. Exactly. Uh, China, they will try and do whatever they please about it. So it's a it's a huge thing. It's a huge difference. And you're right. It is it is in a sense the way they are. If they if they couldn't control these things, China would fall. It would crumble quickly. Absolutely. Quickly.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think it's going to be very interesting because you know when you look at it from the history, from the culture, from and and I totally agree with you. It doesn't matter which side would have won when it was the uh, the, the national democratic folks versus the communists. It, it simply wouldn't have made a difference eventually. This level of stability and control would have come to the forefront, bottom line, because yes. that's what you need to run the place. But they've embraced this, this capitalism. And I know, and, and I remember hearing, you know, folks saying it won't work or They'll eventually mm-hmm. become more like us, period. And then they will compare them to Russia and you know where the Soviet Union failed and then folks went over there with neoliberalism and tried to do what they could, controlling market economy garbage and it turned into a complete nut and hot mess. But the Chinese took a different tact. And I have to say that it's their ability to adapt, to learn and apply a long view, experiment try, no matter how many lives it takes, in order to get it right. And that's what they did because their capitalism is so powerfully successful within the confines of communism. And it's like you said, they make these billionaires. I mean, these folks with money and real power. But you step out of line and you will get smacked down quick. You may be, you know, what let's just say, punished excessively. <laughs> you know, because you didn't tell the line or you did the wrong thing. But they provide this, this space in which to operate where it seems you have a certain amount of liberties, you're able to invent, you're able to grow, you cooperate with the government, you give the government whatever they want, but then you get to live this immense lifestyle. I mean, they're creating a middle class. You know, They're creating financial foundations and, and market economies within the sphere of communism. You know, they, they've got their own stock market. You know, they don't, I don't think they have a strong bond market yet, which is why, you know, their their money isn't the the, the money of the realm, so to speak. But they're getting there. <laughs> you know, we're all still doing dollars, but um seems like it just might be a matter of time. And they keep figuring it out. And, you know, I, I want your perspective on it. What do you think, again, you know, our thought process, where we're going and how they're working it out? I mean, they've got a president now that's going to be a president for life, right? I mean, did he did he just do that and something well, like
1: that? We're going to see him for a while for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so you 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 hit on some some really important points. The uh, the Chinese the Communist Party has been very resourceful and adaptive and observant. And if you were just a random guy, knowledgeable person looking at them in the 1990s, you'd have thought they're through. They're going to fall like the Soviet Union. This is awful. I mean, this is a matter of time, et cetera, et cetera. But You know, China, like I was saying earlier, they've gone through the ringer. You know, they had the Great Leap Forward. They have the Cultural Revolution. They had mass famine. You know, the things that China's gone through in the last 75 years, it's it's amazing. And by the late 1970s, nobody was looking for wild revolutionary shifts like they'd been going through. And when the Soviet Union started to fall and all the color revolutions hit Eastern Europe in the late 80s and 90s, China, basically, the government basically said, we're going to do whatever is necessary to not end up like that, yeah. right? They're a communist party. I mean, the Soviet Union fell. Soviet Union was their patron and sponsor for a long time before they split. And that was their model for how they were going to try and do things. And they needed a new model. And they didn't really have anyone to copy. So they kind of have been working it out. And I think you're right. They've been very resourceful and adaptive. They've been changing different sectors. They've been doing a combination of state control limited you know sort of capital capitalism on the ground they managed to integrate with world markets and i push back a bit on the sort of stuff about their financial system and where their economy is headed i think what we're seeing is that china is clamping down on a lot of things you know they when they were from the 80s 90s and 2000s they were building it all up right they were building you know 600 cities major cities 100 cities with them over a million people you know when you're doing it everyone's going that whole that massive labor force the the chinese labor force during that period was the largest in human history and all those people they were together they were united they were put to work and they started you know building they were exporting and they're building it all up Uh, we're entering a very different phase where china's population is aging and, and aging and shrinking and this is sort of a consequence of their decisions in the late 70s to do the one-child policy. Right. They hadn't done that. No, this is the one thing, I'm always trying to make people aware. This isn't a, this is always like a, you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't done that policy, which was barbaric and you know basically prevented the birth of something like 300 million people, like, like something like the population of the US, again, hard to fathom. Right. If they had not done that, it's very hard to see how they could have developed, because you add- a u.s population's worth of people to china which already has so many people it's very hard clothing feeding yes educating training housing all these people it is this is you know one of the reasons a place like india doesn't develop like the way you know the united states or france does and china was in a real dilemma so it did that but it sort of it's hitting the the, the wall with that soon and you were mentioning uh, you know middle class that's a that's a real challenge to see whether China could form a middle class like we see. So you see middle class in the major coastal cities in China, places like Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, et cetera. But deep inward in China, you go farther in inland
0: west, yeah, you go
1: hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that don't quite have that life. Yeah. and many are living on hundreds of millions are living on couple, you know a couple dollars a day. And that's that's the the real challenge what we're talking about you need all this stability. It's these coastal regions that manage to develop. And that's where a lot of the money, like if you if you invest in China, that's where you get your money's worth. Yeah. Most of the time. They really have to sort of they have to sort of like force, you know, basically brute force development in most other places, right? Build it, bring the state companies in, build it, and try and try and make it work. But they've kind of tapped this out. They've done more infrastructure development than like any country on earth. They've been, and they've been doing it for like decades. Yeah, they've so, got whole
0: empty cities, right? Yeah, you know,
1: I, I, it's funny. I was just asked about the ghost town. So a w- good way to think about it is that when China started, it was all build it and they will come, right? Yeah. Everyone's in the fields, right? So obviously, you got to build, you know, you can't bet on them coming, but you better bet on them coming. Otherwise, what are you going to do? Yeah. And th- they're, especially the real estate sector, which is like all that construction housing, it still kind of runs on that model where it's like, we got to keep building. We have to keep doing it. Something like 25% of the Chinese economy is related to real estate in one Different aspect data. or another. So they keep building. And we're starting to see le- people are not appearing in those cities quite as often, quite as easily. And so that's where you start to get all this ghost town, the ghost city stuff. Uh, you never know that they're, they're doing some perception management. So some of these cities might fill up, you know, a little bit like North Korea, um, <laughs> if it gets a little too prominent. But you're seeing this in a lot of places, right? I mean, the, in Tianjin, there's a major a major city near Shanghai. I mean, sorry, near Beijing. There's a major central business district, like a Midtown, that's just completely empty at least it was a couple of years ago. right? And and there's a lot of change. I mean, this is one of the challenges when we are talking about how the Chinese state is adaptive and resourceful. One of the major things that seems very hard to see how it's gonna to adapt to is, let's just talk about automation with technology, all these changes. If your economy is built on employing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, what do you do when they don't need the work or you can't use them, right? Like, this is like, obviously, we have the Rust Belt. I mean, we have problems. We, we have whole swaths of the country that just kind of feel like they've been left behind. Mm-hmm. But they have the equivalent of whole countries country. that have been left. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's this again, the scale of the problem is immense. And it's, in a lot of ways, China's kind of running out of ammunition. It's, you know, all that development, all that investment in construction it was doing, and it kind of blew its load right like the financial load it's yeah. like it's always felt like china's had infinite money it doesn't have infinite money right, right. you could do certain things when you're exporting all the time you have huge exports you can leverage this money that's good that that is getting tamped down hard now so they're in a, a real challenge i mean after during the covid crisis they wanted to do yet another like state-driven investment boom but even at the top they were like you know i don't know if we could we could do this again like <laughs> it was like so so they they're trying to figure it out and they're having a this this decade in particular many challenges are coming for china right. and the government has done an extraordinary job not a like pleasant nice job or whatever but it's like an yeah. extraordinary job purely on a technical capacity sort of level but can they keep doing it yeah. and that's the question
0: that is the question and, and and you you bring up so many critical salient points when you when you mention those things jason cuz I think about the fact, now I like how you just said it, you know, we it's almost like we don't want to say they did a good job because we know that the the the, the, the position and point of action is brutally honest, painfully so. This is what they do. And with our Western sensibilities, we, we, we try to frown on that. We're like, yeah, not we like how to do things. But they've been successful and they're continuing to be successful to at least to some degree. But like you said, they've got these challenges coming, especially coming out of the post COVID age. But I want to ask you, with your knowledge and understanding, you know, how are these big projects being impacted? Like the Silk Road, the New Mm. Silk Road, that multi-billion dollar project, right? That stretches straight out of Western China, prosperity through um, all straight over to Europe. And with all these no's that they were supposed to having in the the New Silk Road ties, all of this money they've been dumping in Africa, right? And not only have they been dumping money over there, but they've been dumping people over there too, right? So but well, my question now, and I haven't looked at it recently, and I only started thinking about it when you and I got scheduled, and I still haven't been able to dig deeper, but what's the state of that situation, right? Sure. Is that still going to be a strong investment and a big lift? Because Africa's pushing the West out, and they seem to be loving their, their new Chinese partners. I remember, this is the funny thing, I saw an article, and I hope nobody gets offended, but um, th- this Chinese in- industrial guy was bringing a lot of prosperity to an African village, so they made him a chieftain. And you know, they put them on a chair, they were walking <laughs> them around and everything. And I was like, you know, this, you know, that, that look, that's some shit. <laughs> they looked like some stuff. And you know, you had some folks going, well, we don't like this. And and you know, but then they've had, and it's all of this in the same area. Some didn't like it, some did. The folks in charge clearly loved it because they did very well and they're continuing to do very well. Once we get this pandemic under control, my assumption is they will continue to do very well. And I've been made to understand that not only are they going over there, but some folks over there are going back to China or, or rather going to China to get educated, to learn, to make a living. So there's like almost, maybe it's the wrong thing to say, but a cross diaspora exchange of Africans and Chinese in this new pursuit of prosperity. Is that a thing to say? Is, With your knowledge and understanding, what does that look like to you?
1: Sure. I'll start with the the Silk Road one because this thing is so overhyped. So, okay. the way this this is a pure propaganda play and it's mostly to keep industrial production in China insanely high so you don't have to lower all the numbers, lower the workforce lo- levels, lower the exports. Basically, over 95% of global trade happens on the water. Yeah. It happens by sea. It's been like this since, you know, fi- over 500 the entire modern era this is the way it's been. And just think about it. Think about that giant ship that got caught in the Suez Canal. Yep, that yep. thing is enormous. You need thousands of trains to try and do what that thing by itself can do. Absolutely. And so this whole Silk Road thing, it is funny enough just to go back in history. The, the Silk Road itself is overhyped. You know, the, it was most useful when the Mongols opened up that whole region because mm-hmm. Central Asia is not a nice place. You don't just <laughs> roll your stuff through happily. No, it tends to get all get taken and you get killed. And that was how it worked. Uh, it only and by that time, actually, you had seaborne trade. So by the time it really hit its peak, it was already kind of out of date. And, and I'll not say, mean
0: me interrupt you, but but the, yeah, a critical point right there, right, Jason. Central Asia into Eastern Europe is still very much a difficult place, right? <laughs>
1: It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, like, oh yeah, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, like even, even Pakistan, like they have huge investment in Pakistan. I mean, this is like, this is, this is never going to work. I'm just going to be honest with people. Like this is never going to work. It's never going to hit the volume of anything. You're just never going to see major trade going through Kazakhstan and then Russia or like, you know, Persia. or Pers- uh, it's just like, it's just crazy. It's, it's never going to work. Totally overhyped. And people, they're actually playing on this association with the Silk Road because people in the West love the Silk Road. I mean, it was invented, the name was invented by a German geologist or geographer in the 19th century. And it's just been, no one ever talked about it like that for most of history. <laughs> it was just, it's, it's brand new and we think it's super cool. It's also a bit of a historical thing. Like academics were looking for like, his, you know academic historians were looking for like the way to gin up their credentials. And they invented this whole idea of like a global history and blah, blah, blah. It's like, all right, people, most of history, global history like was regional, right? Yeah. And if you did have these long routes and stuff, it was there was multiple links like the Silk Road. Nobody knew more than one or two steps. They didn't know one or two guys behind. It. You had like 15 people. You know what I mean? It was not a so I'll, I'll stop with that. But just to give people the, the <laughs> sense of it, like it is it is not what's made out to be, whether in the past or today. It, it's bunk. It, it's hype. It's bunk. Forget about it. Yeah, um, yeah. As, as for as for Africa. And it's funny because they're also starting to kind of back down on that themselves. They have realized it not quite working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Africa is a very different thing, you know, Africa is, the the fundamental thing about Africa is it has major development challenges, regardless of anybody, whoever, it doesn't matter, like the US never managed to do anything, Europeans never managed to sort of develop Africa en masse, and, and China won't succeed either to start, but what we are seeing in Africa is massive development everywhere because China is looking for, particularly for, for natural resources or for exports for a lot of industrial capacity. And that means, in China, that means, like, we'll build you a port. We'll yeah. build you, like, a giant, fact, we'll build you a railroad. Like, it's a whole thing because they're, because think about it, they've done it in China. Like I was saying, they're running out of places to even do it in China, yeah. or places where it makes any sense, right? Like, in, in the... In the U.S., imagine they're like, "Yo, let me. I'm gonna make a giant railroad from like Bozeman, Montana, to like somewhere in in South Dakota." You're like, what? "I don't
0: think I need that," but yeah, yeah, do it anyway. Yeah,
1: but do it. Yeah, in China, they're like, "We'll do it anyway." Um, and but so what? What's happened in Africa is, so I typically don't like to talk too much just about colonialism or imperialism as we talk about it in sort of Western universities because it tends to flatten everything doesn't let you actually see the diversity of, of the way things were like china's always been an empire but like it doesn't mean the same thing as any kind of an empire in europe so i don't like it but the the investment in in africa that china's doing is 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 like a, a, it is neo neo-colonial if, if you like there's no other way to call it like typically right. what they're doing is yeah. they're building a single railroad to a single you know site for natural resources and that's it i mean that's like the paradigmatic sort of Colonial thing, because the way it works, like a colonial, not a colonial, a foreign power can help a certain place develop if it allows for you know the 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 human capital in the region to flourish. If it allows for further investment, it allows for a diverse economy and sort of a uh, a local economy to develop. That's not what's happening in China in general. And when you see the you know the you know the big chieftains, the big head guys in Africa supporting these guys, typically it's because they're getting a little something themselves. Like we know that there's massive corruption. You can pick pick your African country. And it, these guys at the top, you know, they're trying to do it for them. Not always, but most of the time they're doing it for themselves. It's just it's very hard to get that sort of broad based development you'd really want in most African countries. And China's taking advantage of that to give them something, but really to get what it wants, which is whatever resource, whether it's stuff in Congo or, or whatever. And that's I, I oversimplified it, but I think that is. A good way to think about it because it's just yeah. i recently saw a map where it showed a map of basically most of the projects in africa and it was just like you look at it, you're just like are you serious like what right. what yeah. century are we in but that's kind of unfortunately that's a bit of africa's you know perennial struggle yeah from the you know the european scramble for africa through everything else it doesn't matter if this foreign money comes in the form of aid dollars most usa dollars for again for this broad-based development has just not been effective yeah. and it's something, you know, if the Chinese pull back, unfortunately, Africa might be in a tough spot, kind of writ large, because there's not going to be the capital flows they might need um, yeah. to develop. So, and, where and I think that. you're
0: absolutely right. And unfortunately, it, it's almost surreal when I think about it. But I've got so many friends that are, you know, from West Africa, Nigeria, and whatnot, and yeah. friends from Ethiopia as well. You know, they talk about self reliance, self determination, the things that they want. And they are very open and honest about being, having been kneecapped by imperialism and you know, that's just the way it is. So their whole take on it has been, you know, whether it's one side of the globe or the other, folks always come here to exploit and we keep putting people in power who facilitate that. And, yeah. it's, and I always try to be circumspect and careful because I don't want to offend, you know, I have a perspective and I see it, but I want to understand before I pass an understanding as opposed to a judgment, I think. Might be the best way to say it but i know that they want to make the right decisions and it's going to be a hard thing maybe a hundred year thing for them to figure it out right yeah because like you said if china pulls out what happens next they, they've got in the innovation that i see coming out of africa to me to me it shocks me just like it does when i see things over the last few cent- uh, decades with china they will figure it out right They can, or at least they can if they stay focused on it, but it seems to always come from the bottom to the top. And then you got the top going back down to the bottom and there's this big mess in the middle, you know? like so, you know, like when I talk to my friends who uh, over here from China and they they keep talking about all the innovations and change and all of this, they're bubbling up, talking about what they want to do and what they want to see and what they want to build. And then that hammer comes down from the top because as you said, China's got to be about order. And, you know, yeah, we want to go ahead and, and facilitate AI but you're going to do it this way. Exactly. You're going to run it tied to a whole bunch of cameras because I need to see every last one of you. We're going back to something that you said. Yeah, Now that might stifle a little bit of your creativity, but did you not happen to notice that that point that you wrote said something bad about us? And we're not having that. And you need to go somewhere for a little while. So that's what we're going to do. And when you come out, we're going to be able to see you in your home, in your kitchen, on the corner, as you walk down the street. All of these things are going to matter. And that's how we maintain order. It's you know, it's not the purview of me, of anyone, I believe, to judge and castigate, but it's important to know. It's important to know, just to understand. At least that's how I see it. I, I don't know if you feel the same way about it, Jason, but you, you got to have an understanding of it and you got to engage in it. And, you, and in my opinion, you want to be a partner with people because maybe you can help just by highlighting. I don't know.
1: Yeah, and just qu- quickly about Africa. You just mentioned at the beginning, Africa's. I wasn't trying to discount imp- all the imperialist behavior. I mean, it was, it was terrible and it was tragic, and it prevented the sort of a, a more natural nation-state formation process. Right when you have all these countries drawing lines from you know, other places, you know it's, it ends up. You know that's the Middle East, right? That's the whole Syria, Iraq, all these things that don't exist. And it's it can if you have successive rounds of this going on, you never get the people there to figure it out. And it's just, it's one of the terrible tragedies of, you know, the sort of European, you know, conquest of the world. I, I have a stat actually, in the yeah. book I'm writing it's like from like, I think it was like 1600 to 1800, like Europe conquered like 84% of the globe. It was, sure it, it's, it's insane. And, and like that said, is massive. Everywhere.
0: Right through yeah. tribes and yeah. all. Yeah.
1: And it's, and it's just, yeah. And again, they don't care. The languages, the cultural diversity that, you know, the, the capacity to expand, all this kind of stuff isn't, isn't looked at. And yeah, I mean hopefully hopefully this the knowledge helps to not to tell people, oh, this is the way it is, it, it sucks forever, it's never gonna work. It's like here's the knowledge so you could see what could happen, what can't happen, what we can learn. That's kind of what I'm trying to do with that. Awesome. And as for China, yeah, this it, you know what we're seeing in the tech sector, particularly, is just what you said. Here, all this creativity, we could be making TikTok 2.0 and all this stuff, and they're they're actually very clear now that what China is not interested in trying to create a new Apple or a new Facebook, what they want is technologies that are very going to make social control possible if that makes sense what ai does is it lowers the per capita cost of all these social controls right because a crazy stat for for your listeners is that china actually spends more money on internal security than on you know external defense through its military it spends more and so when you're looking at the wuhan lockdown and you're looking at what happened during the pandemic that wasn't a public health response. That was actually the activation of the internal security measures that China has been building up the last few decades. That's the sort of thing you do when there's a rebellion in a city. That's what we're, that's what we were really looking at. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I have a podcast episode, that if anyone's interested, but the it's, and, you know, the pandemic has really accelerated, the, you know, China, the leadership's understanding that they need, they need as much of this kind of stuff as possible if they want to, you know, just survive what's coming in, in their mind. And yeah, that just means creative, like new apps. They're not interested. They want, you know, they want new rocket engines. They want, they want tech, hardcore technologies, new, you know, better trains, better, better cameras, better this, better that all this sort of, Oh, a new tech messaging app. Right. That's, that's what my joke the last, I mean, the whole 2010s was like, how many versions of a messaging app can American tech companies create? Right. I got on my phone. I have like eight ways I text people basically. It's like what is this? And anyway, <laughs> that's a totally separate thing but China is definitely like no that's a waste of our time. I don't care about your creativity. You know work on new nuclear reactors, work on this, work on that. Will they get the sort of innovation they need or they want that's another challenge, right? right. These you know there's a whole changing culture in China. It used to be called the 996 lifestyle where all these tech companies were making people work crazy hours yeah. and um yeah, it's basically like what 9 to 9, 6 days a week. And it's just it, it it's burning out because the you know the tech lifestyle is typically you want you know you, you can do all this work to get this sort of liquidity event to get equity you know to have that happen get big bucks but if you're just grinding out infinitely like that it's 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 taking a huge toll so we're seeing a lot of chinese people going to state companies now and the government is starting to reemphasize a lot of these state companies because it sees them like we're going to need a giant electrical company we're going to need a you know this this, this scale question is starting to become even more important for the government, and the real question is: Well, will they be able to manage and get the innovation they want applied to technology, applied to AI and surveillance, and all that, and everything else at the same time as they assert more control? So that's what I was talking about earlier when you were like, "Well, the you know the financial markets and all this, you know, they kind of might be moving in this direction." What we're seeing is the, we're seeing them pull back because they want again, it's control, it's keeping capital in the country. The billionaires you mentioned in China, they are trying to get their money out starting in 2015, we are, see, we are seeing the, the largest capital flight out of China than we've seen anywhere on earth. It's about a trillion dollars a year. The only thing that's comparable is the end of the Soviet Union, is the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s. When just as you mentioned earlier, like that was another example where the US like, oh, let's make Russia, you know, <laughs> something else, please. Let's make <laughs> Iraq something else, please. Well, let's make Afghanistan something else. It's like people we have to learn like we're not. Yeah. This is why I love being on here. It's like yeah, we have a you know a history and values and, and all this, but so do other places. And you can't make the remake the world in your image. You're going to be you're gonna waste your time, waste your money and fail and just be humiliated by the end of it and still not even understand what happened. So exactly. Right.
0: We can't export America.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. America's staying in America.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let me ask you, um, we've got our everyday folks here. We, we, we know that Americans who probably, you know, uh, just absorb regular news, right? And they've got an innate fear of China.
1: Yes. And, um, some
0: of them are straight up terrified. You know, um, is that, I would hazard to guess that the fear is unfounded. That's my perspective. And I tell people to, to look at the details, but of course I don't have it all. You know, I'm not half as knowledgeable as you. So I would love to ask you that question, you know, as an everyday American going about my business, knowing that things are happening, powerful things on a geopolitical level, just something I should be concerned about, something that I need to consider when it comes down to China as a as this world power that's growing and, and we fear domination. Um, like you said, there are clearly other factors that are happening that will bring balance to the model, but you know, to the person that I meet on the street. And they say, well, yeah, you know, I'm afraid of China. What what do you say to that?
1: Well, it's it's hard not to be just on a gut level, like an instinctual level. It's hard to say out, and that's totally ridiculous. But I think the thing I would say is that, first of all, there's a couple things going on, you know, in the U.S. that are impacting this. And and what's kind of happened is that the U.S., we're, we're struggling to... Orient ourselves, articulate a vision, get our get our shit together. Excuse me, or house house in order, if you want. Yep. Um, Fair enough. Say it
0: again, Jason. Say yeah, it yeah. Again.
1: And it, both both on the left and the right. And China is the great nemesis you can use to motivate and mobilize people towards something. Right. So we need to go back to the moon because China's going to the moon. Right. We need to go to Mars because China's going to Mars. We need to build this because China's building this. We need to do this because China's doing this. We're seeing this at every level for for everything. So you're being pushed this part of this narrative by the U S and some of this is valid because the U S maybe we ignored them for too long. Maybe we just gave them everything. And I I think that's true in some ways. And, but at the same time, we, the reason, big reason the U S never responded to China is because they they kept, you know, prices low for everything and the political class didn't want changes and they allowed, you know, Chinese manufacturing to decimate huge swaths of the country and no one's ever going to own up to this. Right. So the politicians are gonna try and move the needle without ever admitting what they did wrong. And obviously they've also circulated. So it's like new politicians. So they pretend it's not them, but that's the way it's gone. It's the corporate class did the same thing, political class and various sort of consulting academic elites have all kind of been a part of this. And so it'd be crazy to say, Oh, this, this fear of China is, is unfounded. The real question is what exactly are we, do we fear, do we fear that China is going to roll up to California on ships Start like landing on the beaches because I'll tell you right now that's not going to happen, right? Um, That's that's not happening. The the real question I think there's more of a a background fear that we're thinking about. It's like, you know, what is the world going to look like, right? What are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to lose everything? Are we going to gain everything? And I just think that the thing to keep in mind is that you know the US isn't going away. It's not like that China is like rising to, to be you know number one in the economy and the US has disappeared right yeah. Um. it's not like we're disappearing and the the entire, the entire Chinese economic system is not sustainable in the way it functions right from the credit system to the consumer economy to the financial markets to its energy everything agriculture all the way down to, to, to juice everything up they basically have been giving it steroids like in every sector. And, you know, the price will, they will have to pay a price for that at some point. Like one way to think about it for business owners or people in you know, in, in the markets here, imagine if you have lived for 30 years without ever experiencing a business cycle ever, yeah, yeah. ever. So just Go imagine all the companies. Yeah. No one ever had to pull back. Yeah. No one ever pulled out. No one even experienced it, right? Like it's the, the, the mentality isn't even there. It's, it's even wilder when you think about it. And <laughs> it, so, there, you know, there'll be a price to pay for all of that the, you know, the real thing is that China, the problem with China is that a big reason why the U.S. never confronted China as well is because the the problem with China is that it's terrifying when it's united and together and that powerful state is kind of doing its thing. It's also really scary when it's broken in pieces and it's just unimaginable case. Like if China collapsed, this is one of those things that, you know, I bring up to make things more complicated for everybody, which is really (laughs) unfortunate. But, you know, if China collapsed, you would immediately see like more violence and chaos than you've seen anywhere in a very long time. Just right. think about 1.4 billion people. It's, or more, <laughs> the numbers might be wrong, but the it, it's it's so many, it's so massive, massive that it's it's hard to, to fathom. And yeah, that's what I'd say. I'd, I'd say the other thing to keep in mind, because it's often, you know, it's often what people care about is economics, you know, military stuff. Honestly, I don't think people care in the US. Americans don't really care about much else. They don't like, don't want to look yeah. like a punk in general. We don't <laughs> want to look like a punk. We don't want yeah. them to be like, richer and stronger kind of so for the richer thing most chinese people have a tiny per capita income that's the first absolutely. thing absolutely so and like i said they're trying to get their money out of china so if you want to look at why there's massive home inflation i mean from in atlanta in, in new york everywhere yeah. uh, a lot of foreign investors have been pouring capital into assets they can keep so the chinese state to tries to seize your assets They can't take, you know, your house in your penthouse in Manhattan. And they've been looking for places with strong property rights, which you don't have in China. And they've been doing that. So that's not a sign of a place. If if all your billionaires want to get out, maybe it's not a place that everyone should be betting on. Uh, So there's that. And then remember, China's got neighbors. China shares border with like 18, 19 countries. It is, you know, it's got mean neighbors. It's got Russia. It's got the Koreas. (laughs) It's got Japan. It's got Taiwan. It's got Vietnam. It's got India. We're chilling here with Canada and Mexico. Mexico <laughs> and and nobody else. Like the not a single part of the U.S. military is even thinking about Canada yeah, or no, Mexico, Mexico, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, China has you know preparing to fight in the Himalayas. It's, yeah. You know you got almost got to a nuclear conflict with uh, with Russia back back in the sixties and seventies. It's it has North Korea almost okay, famine and breakdown on its border. It's got Japan, which brutally colonized it, brutally, brutally colonized it, just dangling off the coast. It has Taiwan, which is like a massive aircraft carrier, like made of granite (laughs) and an island that just sits there. Right. And and then it it colonized Vietnam, you know, people, Chinese government likes to say, oh, we're a a peaceful power and we've never done anything. That is...
0: Not true. Speak your mind, Speak your mind Jason. Go yeah, ahead. that
1: is total crap, man. Like it is, like China has always been an empire. Anytime it has not been an empire, it has been in, broken in pieces, it and it tried themselves. to. Yeah, and it tried to colonize Vietnam for a thousand years, and it failed. And the Vietnamese remember if yeah. you know the second there's even the, the slightest hint of some conflict, they won't even remember the Vietnam War, which to us is such a massive event. Yeah, no. not so and much it, to them. Not. Yeah, you know, doesn't matter that the Vietnamese are communist and Chinese are communist. Absolutely not. That is brutal, yeah. like, you know, that would be brutal. Everyone would be prepared for a brutal guerrilla war for decades. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's a different, it's a different, you know, it's a different neighborhood, man. It's got kind of a mean neighborhood. And you got to remember that. Well, if you want to get to the US, all right, you know, pummel the Koreas, pummel Japan, pummel Taiwan. Pummel, you know, it's
0: like, <laughs> Best of luck, right? Best like of it's, luck. yeah.
1: Best of luck. I mean, it's it's a it's tough for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, well, Jason, I, I want to just give you one final word on the show. Um, anything you want to share with our uh, with our guest as our guest? Anything you want to share with the crowd before we call it for today? Because it's been an absolute pleasure, and and you know we definitely got to have you back again. But anything else you want to add before we close out for the day?
1: Now I'll just tell people where to find me. Where if they want to hear more about. What I'm up to, uh, so I go. I have some long articles where I talk about different Chinese you know, systems of China. So I'll talk about the agriculture system, the energy system, all these kind of things. Again, to get this, it's it's get wrapping our heads around the scale is tough. So yeah. do that. I got a podcast called the China Unraveled Podcast, which is you can go find wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, what else am I up to? Well, I got a book that's coming out. That I was gonna ask you about out. That. You Yeah, have
0: to put that in. You're gonna write. You're writing a book.
1: Yeah, trying to get it out. Um, actually, right when we get off, I'm gonna. Burrow my head down and try and edit some of it. Um, yeah, so hopefully you know early next year I'll have that out. And you know, for people who are interested in just the stuff about countries and how they work, I'm probably going to be doing a free course later in the year. So oh. you could email me something about that. Uh, just because it's it's tough to get a handle on what's going on. Our, our journalism's kind of been dying, economically yeah. destroyed. It's really not so,
0: It's not a viable business, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, yeah. you, you got to get it where you can, can get it. And you got to apply a critical thinking mind to it when you receive yeah, it. So you for sure. It. But yeah, so do me a favor. Um, send me all of that information, Jason. We're going to go ahead and put that out there when we post this episode. And look, dude, when you get the book done, you, you got to come back. And if you've got <laughs> anything of a moment that you want to talk about, you got to come back. I think this yeah. is a great conversation. Because to be quite honest, right? We are totally embroiled with what's going on at home as we should be yeah. because this is where we are. But you got to take a you got to take a beat. You got to take a pause. You got to consider a global perspective because this is the one planet we have and we all share it together. And things are important here at home, but things are important elsewhere and whether you believe it or not, it it has real-world impact and I just want to throw this out real quick to call it out because you stated it and I want to listen to to understand it. Money is vacating China because folks are trying to find some place to put it where they can achieve their own personal stability in order, inflict that order (laughs) upon their money. In an area like where I live, greater metro Atlanta, you know, there are certain parts of the city where you go to where you might find a little bit unsavory, you know, but they're like big old projects and whatnot. And to your point, you're starting to find that the folks who own those projects these days Don't look like your everyday run-of-the-mill Americans and they don't necessarily speak English. Mm. But that's what's happening. And, Mm. you know, that's the American way. If anything, you shouldn't be angry about it, upset or pissed off that Chinese money is coming into the, the area to buy property. That's the business model. That's how our nation works. Understand it and make sure you secure your own. And that is the advice that I would give in that regard. But bottom line is just see it and understand it and know what it is and understand why. These are the critical things. This is how we get to answers. This is how we understand each other. This is how we etch the edges. So all of that. Thank you so much, Jason Sheftall. I got it right.
1: Close enough. Sheftel. Yeah, you got Chef-tall.
0: it. <laughs> Jason Sheftel. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we look forward to having you back soon.
1: Thanks, Derek. I'll be back on soon.
0: The story, as ever, what is the story? Today, the story was about China and the Western perspective. Competitors? Yes. But still, people trying to live and thrive to achieve the best for themselves and their posterity, just like we're trying to do. However, we know what it takes. We've got to lean in. We've got to learn the history, their history, more of our history, and how those things intersect. We have to learn the truth. For you see, it's absolutely critical if we're all to share this world together and avoid adverse negative conflict that costs us in ways we can't imagine. We can do it. We must do it. But in order to do it, we have to edge the edges, right? We have to thank Jason for sharing his perspective on China as well as other parts of the world in a very informative and uplifting conversation and of course we have to thank you for listening to our podcast we hope you've enjoyed it so please as ever like and subscribe tell your family tell your friends follow us on twitter and instagram at EtchTheEdges. the edges and don't forget to visit our website at etch check us out join the movement express your commitment to the cause the cause for a better america a better world where we all can stand together at the mountaintop be good to yourselves and each other